Thank you, gentlemen, and welcome to you, Westmount. Always a highlight, I pray it is for you to just come and gather and sing to our King songs. Now we turn our attention uh, very directly in a sense of study and proclamation to the Word of God. So take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 26. That is our residence for today, Exodus 26. As you're turning there, a reminder that we indeed are continuing our study here, and this portion particularly on the tabernacle, the tabernacle, which is, if you recall from last time, means the dwelling place. That's really at the heart of the word. It means residence. It means the abiding, the place of God Almighty, specifically his presence here, as we'll see, with and among man. That's what is in view here with tabernacle. Remember Westmount here in the final chapters of Exodus, we observe the command and the construction of tabernacle. That's what we're seeing here, command and construction of tabernacle. Last week, just by way of quick review, we looked at the instructions pertaining to the first three pieces. Do you remember that? We looked at the first three pieces Really, almost by way of the chronology in the Word of God, uh, in importance with the first one for sure, the ark. The ark was the first, which was the chest containing the testimony or the law. But more, remember the ark, which was the platform for the mercy seat, the place of mercy. Remember, it was framed by those wings of the cherubim, framed by the cherubim, And we would say, even as you think about the word there, the mercy seat, the propitiation, where, and this is what we've been tracking with, it seems parallel to our study in Hebrews, where once a year, the priest would go in, right, and and make propitiation by way of the lamb's blood or the uh, animal's blood. Here, we see the place of propitiation with blood where God was met. And the ark resided in the most inner room of the tabernacle. We've been learning about these rooms too and much more today. That inner room, also referred to as the most holy place. The center room, if you will, the holy of holies, which again, we're going to comment on more in a moment, certainly in this chapter, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that was the ark. It's where it sat, the most sacred piece. After that, chapter 25 described two more pieces, you remember them, both of which were in the next room outward. There was the most holy place and it was the holy place. There were three pieces total in that room. And last week, our study, the text took us to two of them, two of them in that next room. The first of the two was the table. Remember, the table held the bread of the presence. The holy bread. That was, remember, the regularly prepared, that is, each week, the set-apart holy bread. And that was, if you remember last week, to be consumed each Sabbath by the priests, who were the representatives of the people. And that regular consumption was a shadow and a prefigure for Israel by God's design. And church, remember, it's a pointer for us, too, From the bread of the presence to the bread of life. 
He commented on this. Jesus Christ, the only place of nourishment for salvation and for sustenance. He who feeds on the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, John 6, will never hunger and never need. So that was the table. Three, the third piece we looked at last week was the lampstand. The menorah, if you will. That symbol of much for Israel, and it still is today, the menorah, the lampstand. More, the lampstand gave light inside the tabernacle. Remember, it would have been darkened, and you'll see that especially today when we look at all the coverings over the tabernacle. It would have been dark in there, and light was needed. It's a place of illumination, the lampstand. And again, that lampstand pointed and shone forward. This was the point. Pointing to the true light. The one that was coming that was the true light. That true light which gives light to everyone who came into the world. The true light who, yes, is the light of the world. Jesus Christ, John 8. He is our lamp of life. These first three tabernacle pieces reveal much to us about Yahweh's plan for his people of all time. Now listen, Israel then and church us now. And it'll be no different as we continue in our text this morning, chapter 26, no different. A chapter that pauses for a moment on the tabernacle pieces. We're going to return to those pieces in chapter 27, but... There's a pause here in chapter 26 as we look at the structure. Indeed, the divine author pulls back to look at the structure itself. Now, a couple of important points by way of introduction to what we're going to study today. Number one, let's comment on the dimensions. You notice we really haven't with the measure thus far, and this is a good time to do so. The tabernacle size. You're going to see dimensions throughout our text And I want to summarize those up front so you have an opening sense of the scope of what we're talking about today. You've noticed, maybe in the three pieces, and will notice that most of the measurements are given in something called a cubit. A cubit. You've seen that. Chapter 25, verse 10, for example. And then in this chapter, verse 2, we'll see it right away. The cubit was an ancient measure that referred to, this is very handy, right, when you think about uh, maybe not the progression of tools, from the elbow to the fingertip. You see that? That was a measure. A standard-ish kind of measure, elbow to fingertip. A length that was roughly, and again, this varies depending on the person, but roughly we're talking about 18 inches. For our metric friends, that's 45 centimeters. About 18 inches. And just to help us along this morning as we consider this tent and its size then, what is described here, and settle this in your mind with scope, a long rectangular tent structure. We take those converted dimensions and what we have here is a tabernacle roughly 45 feet long. 45 feet long, it's about 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. Simply that, a long rectangular uh, structure. Later, it's revealed the tent contains two rooms. You see this? Two rooms, an inner and an outer room. We've noted that last week. We've noted it again today. It's mentioned in Hebrews. So we're getting comfortable with this long rectangular structure with two rooms in it. The inner, which we'll see in verse 34, and again has been referenced, it's the most holy place. 
It was one-third of the tent was the most holy place. Thus it was, when you think about the most holy place, it was a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. That was the most holy place. That was the heart. The remaining two-thirds of the tent made up the room referred to as the holy place. Verse 33. So the tabernacle structure itself, again, we're just introducing this, was in essence a tent, 45 feet long, two rooms. That was the tabernacle of the tent. So that's the first introductory point. The second has to do with the name. This is a really important point. Is Remember we said a couple weeks ago, the tabernacle, you're going to see it go by a number of names in our passage. And we're introduced to another one today. The name in this chapter, the tabernacle, is at times in this text referred to as the tent. The tent, you will see that. That is ohel in the original language and simply a great word that points us to a number of things that we need to mention. We mentioned that each word used and when it's used is for a reason. And it's no different with this word for tent here. We talked about sanctuary, right, and tabernacle itself. Well, here tent, and this is really helpful because what do you think of when you think of tent? You think of a temporary structure, right? And that's really what's being pointed to here, very simply, a temporary structure. And this will be a helpful reminder as we move through this portion of Scripture. The tent tells us that this dwelling was never intended to be permanent. Do you see that? It was never intended to be permanent, hence a tent. Yes, in time it would move to a more permanent dwelling. Remember, Solomon erected that. And it would feel like, when you get to the text of Solomon, that it is more permanent and indestructible. But of course, time would demonstrate that it was not. It was destroyed, of course. I know earthly structures that were made of perishable things, as beautiful as they were, were and always are temporary. Temporary. Yet remember, even with expiration dates, God still infused these temporary things with meaning. Do you see that? Even though we have temporary things and God commands the construction of temporary things, God still infuses those with meaning. As Yahweh used and uses earthly objects to point his people to coming eternal realities. We've been listening over the past few weeks and this morning, as Jeremy mentioned, right in Hebrews, this is precisely what God is doing, right, with this tabernacle, pointing to an eternal reality. Much more we'll say about that today and the weeks to come. Again, we'll see the earthly structure that we're studying here in Exodus prefigured the heavenly one. The earthly structure prefigured the heavenly one. So let's examine precisely how in this text. Look down with me, chapter 26, verse 1. Let's read the first portion to open our time. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twinned linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, 
and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we consider these opening verses and the chapter before us, Lord, we beg you that you would give us illumination to see, an understanding mind, Lord, a heart to receive, and Father, by your grace and according to your will, that we would take all that you're teaching us in this text and and go out and give you glory. So Father, we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This text opens with beautiful detail. Do you see that? And we're getting accustomed to that here. In this tabernacle construction, beautiful, exquisite detail, pieces we saw last week, now structure. This is the tabernacle, the dwelling structure described. And here in this chapter, we're going to see three parts this morning. We're going to see the curtains, the frames, and the veils. That's what we're going to see, and that's our study. So let's look at the first, jump right in, the curtains. The curtains. In verse 1, we learn that the walls of the tabernacle will be lined with curtains. Four sets of curtains. That's what you're going to see here. Four sets of curtains. Amazing. In fact, one lining the inside and then three lining the outside. And that fact alone is noteworthy to begin. And I just want us to think about this when we consider construction of God's dwelling place. Four layers of curtain, four layers of covering. Even today... This is debated, right, in home decor, I'm sure. Is it one or two curtains in the house? You have an inner lining and outer lining. Two would really be it, right? Imagine doubling that and having four curtains over your window or any covering. You're doubling what would be the max. Well, consider what is going on here in this ancient text, this ancient construction. Let's look at each set of these tabernacle curtains. The first inner set are described, we just read them in verses 1 to 6. So let's consider this again. And as you consider them, consider what we just read, it should be no surprise that these are no ordinary curtains. In fact, they're not even just fancy curtains, right? They're no ordinary curtains. This first set line the inner walls of the tent. This is key. They would not be seen from the outside. I really want us to grab a hold of this. Now imagine... That kind of detail just on the inside, they wouldn't be seen from the outside. That's a key, key piece of this construction. These curtains face the holy place and most holy place. Let's consider the details we just read. First, we note the tabernacle will be lined with ten of them. Ten curtains. You say ten. There were four. There are indeed four overall, but these are ten curtain units Of the first layer. So, not just one long piece of fabric like an inner lining, don't think that. No, think of 10 individually crafted units, and we'll see them come together in a moment. And why is that? Well, this is because the tent, remember, is a tent. It's temporary, and not only temporary, it's portable. The Israelites would be wandering in the wilderness, part of their judgment, right? for their, their grumbling and, in one sense, rejection of the plan of God and the provision of God. So they would wander, and the tabernacle would be moving around. It needed to be portable. 
like all camping gear is today, right? What you're looking for is something that's portable and can move well and quickly and be packed. And in the same way, God builds that into this tabernacle. It's portable. So you have 10 curtain units making up this first curtain, if you will. Facilitates the setup and the takedown. Now these 10 curtains, when draped, were fastened together with, look at this in verse 6, 50 clasps of gold. Beloved, I don't want you to miss all the details here. These are not wooden or even metal clips. Do you see that? These curtains were joined together with gold. Gold fasteners. Yes, gold even in the curtains. We saw lots of gold last week with the ark, the table, and the lampstand. And we see more gold here now joining the curtains together. Church, that is nothing but excellence in every single detail. Let's not miss it. And with the gold, we see in the curtains usage of other precious materials. So it's not just gold. There's more which, remember, God called for out of the heart. Do you remember that? The heart contribution in chapter 25. In fact, let's look at it. Chapter 25, just a reminder in verse 2. Remember, God is now calling into construction the materials that he's already called for, right? And we would go even further back that he's already provided for. Verse 2, chapter 25, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twin linen, goats here, tanned ramskins, goat skins. And we stop it there to just say, there are materials that we will see in view in this text. Those materials are needed here now in chapter 26 for the making of the curtains. In fact, you see that immediately in chapter 26, verse 1. God says, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twinned linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Right away, they're used. The fine twinned linen, that meant, by the way, it was bleached a brilliant white. So this is the, the finest of linen, right? With a crisp white. And set against that brightness, look at it, yarns of blue, purple and scarlet. Remember the deep colors Deep colors that were precious colors, later associated with royalty. And remember, that was so because those colors needed much more dye to get their depth and to get that brilliant color. So precious colors. And look also, what was worked into these curtains with such precious yarn? What was it? What kind of embroidery was used here? In the opening verse, look at it in verse 1. We learn it's cherubim. Cherubim. Yes, the same heavenly creatures we saw described last week above the ark. Remember, these special creatures that we see purposed as guardians. From the garden entrance to the ark cover and here to the tabernacle walls. Guarding the entrance, guarding the places where God dwells. That's it. The cherubim line the curtain walls like heavenly sentinels. Looking on the holy. Looking on the holy. Thus we find cherubim on the inner curtains. The ones, and this makes sense, closest to God's presence. Of all the curtains, this first layer is closest to God's presence, and hence cherubim. 
So that's the first layer of curtain. The second layer of curtains is an outer layer, and it's described starting in verse 7. Look with me. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall be hot, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. Let me stop there. That's the second layer. And again, in the second layer, we see the usage of the material that's called in by God. Do you see the pattern called in in chapter 25? Used here in chapter 26. And what's one of those materials? Goat's hair. Goat's hair is strong. It's durable. It's impermeable, in fact. It's good hair fiber, and it's such it has enduring use. In fact, to this day, Arabs and Bedouins and shepherds in the Middle East still use goat's hair to weave together their tents. This is a durable hair fiber, very useful. And God commands its use here for this exterior curtain, the second layer of the tabernacle. And note that we, and this is, might have missed this along the way, but let's not miss it. We've moved outside now. We had the inner lining. We've now moved to the covering. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, look at uh, verse 7 again. Not only is the goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle, but this second layer has how many curtain panels? Not 10, but 11. As you see through that intricate detail that's given there, given to take care of the overlap. So there's no exposed seam. This layer then ensures that the tabernacle is sealed both visually and physically from the outside. Do you see that? God caring for all these details. And by the way, note the clasps on this exterior curtain. Look at verse 11. They are what? Bronze. Bronze. They're not gold. They're different, and that's an important difference. Because if there was any thought that bronze was still nice to look at, the next two curtain layers put that to rest. Look at verse 14. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ramskins and a covering of goatskins on top. There's your third and fourth layer. Again, the materials of both layers match to what God calls for in chapter 25. I just want you to see that. Perfect order from our Lord. Two kinds of skins which tell us they were selected for strength. Like leather is today, right? Strong leather. Third layer was composed of the tanned ram skins. Tanned red, by the way. And the fourth layer was also skin. But you'll probably notice, depending on what translation you're reading from, it's it's a very debated animal because it's a very hard word to translate in the Hebrew. If you have an ESV, it says goats. If you have an NASV, it says porpoises. Holman Christian says manatees, and King James says badgers. It's a very difficult animal to determine, but here's the key. It's not so much the nature of the animal, but it's what what is around most animals. The point is not to confuse, but to illustrate the original word here is pointing to skins. Skins. 
The skin in the fourth layer that was waterproof like most animal skin is. Being the outermost layer, it was the most durable and protective, and that's the point. So we pause for a moment there, and you look at that and you say, well, that's a lot of construction. Let's just take stock for a moment and consider these curtains, these four layers as they've been revealed. Inside, think with me, stunning, royal-dyed, gold-linked, fine linen curtain lining the interior. Picture that. And outside, the not-so-stunning, common, practical curtains. We can easily say, nothing to look at, right? One curtain inside, three out. Really, in fact, to the unenlightened observer, this would appear like other desert tents. Do you see that? To the unenlightened eye. Yet it wasn't any old tent, was it? What made it unique was not the exterior of the tent. What made it unique was what resided on the inside. And note this, what resided inside that most couldn't see. Once again, I ask you, does that sound familiar? Does that not sound familiar? Yes, what is true of this temporary tabernacle was also true of the permanent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took on humanity. Remember, He took on what? Our common form in flesh. Brilliant God on the inside, unseen to physical eye, but draped in common skin. This is precisely the point of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And listen to this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The suffering servant, the Messiah, the coming one, had no form that would be desired, that we would even look on him. How many then are unable to see past that covering of Messiah today? How many cannot see past that? The blind Orthodox Jew is one thing. But what about the blind, rebellious Gentile? Can't see past that covering. Unable to behold the majesty of Christ in blindness. They see only a carpenter. In blindness, they see only what? Skin. And you've heard it. He was just a man. Right? You gather Sunday morning for just a man? I mean, a really good man, I would grant you, a really good moral teacher. But he's just skin. They're blind and they can't see. Yes, these ancient curtains too point us to the true tabernacle, the Christ. We move now to one of the most functional and practical tent pieces from the curtains now to the frames. Look at verse 15. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There should be two tenons in each frame for fitting together, so shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver. 
you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. And they shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frame, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for that you were shown on the mountain. So here, at this point, you might read those verses and think, you might, that's it. Just verses on bases and and wood frames, right? Maybe you're thinking that, okay, just verses on that. Well, what are the wood frames pointing to? What do the frames, the bases represent? And if you're thinking that, you wouldn't be alone. There are some that create all manner of fanciful links here. I can't begin to tell you them. Wood or frames or frame bases representing all manner of spiritual object. Lots of conjecture. Yet, that default in us raises an important caution for us. And certainly at this point. And it's a reminder of few things that I think are helpful, especially at this point in our study in Exodus. Number one, we want more in our reading, don't we? There's just frames, and there's a piece of you that's like, it's just frames. I want a narrative. I want something else. Don't you normally have something? We want more, don't we? Reading about frames of a tabernacle, there's something very carnal that's not appeased in us. This is important. Number two, Even though we want more, we say to this point, the pointers of more have been clear and they've been even referenced elsewhere, right? And you have seen that when there is a pointer, when there is more, they're obvious and they're always pointing to Christ himself. Yet even amid those clear links, this tells us that sometimes, even in this preview tent, sometimes frames are just frames. Frames are just frames. Listen, expected details, you would expect that in construction, right? So expected details, but not emphasized ones. Not emphasized ones. Details, listen, matter to God. But not every detail is a type. I think often, and this is where many have gone astray, remember, it's true, listen, you can't give an account of a construction like this You can't give an account of something without details, right? So it is expected, but because you give details, and many important ones, ark, bread, skins, it doesn't mean that every detail is given to stand for something else. And we have church, this is why we need to pause for a moment. We have a very bad habit of doing this. 
especially to Old Testament texts and Jesus' parables. I know you know that. Pressing every single detail of a parable to mean something. Let me give you one example, and bear with me as we take an extra minute here, because this is so important. Just heard this the other day, our penchant to do this. I want you to consider the account of David and Goliath. Do you remember the stones that he took from the brook? Five of them, right? He took five stones, five smooth stones. Well, that's all the account says, and we'll come back to that in a moment. I didn't have to dig deeply because I pick on this particular text because many go and launch off it. it. This is just one modern interpretation of the five stones that David pulled out. And this is what we need to be careful of, that we don't spiritualize details that were never intended to be spiritualized. This is just my first check. A church in New York has this for the edification of their body. I'm just going to quote. Again, bear with me, and it's very helpful. They say this on the David and Goliath story. Most of us know what happened in this story. David only needed one stone to fell his giant opponent. And at that point, we say yes, and we move on. But then they say, but. And there's the thirst for more. We can attach some meanings to those five stones he collected. Meanings that were applicable to David, yet are also instructional to us today. And here we go. Long article. We can name his first stone courage. The whole Israelite army shook with fear when confronted by the giant Philistine. Even King Saul, who was taller than all around him, but for David. Years of protecting his flocks from predators gave him a boldness to face all challenges. That's stone number one. And so we can name his second stone confidence. Each victory won, no matter how small, added to David's faith and confidence. He didn't trust his youthful abilities alone, but also in the power and supremacy of his God. Sounding pretty good. The third stone, David's third stone, we will label preparation. Do you think he just sat and played his harp all day long? That he just sheep tended? He practiced with his sling, really the only weapon he had except possibly for a small dagger. We can all agree, note the language, we can all agree. Shooting a gun, playing an instrument, throwing a football, if you practice, will get better. And then listen to this. Practice enough and you can reach virtuoso status, an expert. This is on the David and Goliath story. Practice long enough and you become an expert. That's one of the principles. But the day will come when you need to perform what you've rehearsed. David was ready physically. He had skill with his sling. And he was also prepared spiritually. He knew his God and he knew what he could do with God on his side. That's the third stone, preparation. Fourth stone, it says, is trust or belief. We can even call it faith. He believed God gave him victory before flinging the first stone. Despite the threats and Goliath's size, David trusted God for the outcome. And then listen to this. You've heard this. David had the kind of faith that can move mountains and succeed against all odds. Fifth stone. Fifth stone is the one he used was victory. In the natural world, we don't send raw recruits into battle without training or hand a violin to a beginner and place them in a symphony orchestra. Success can only be obtained by diligent practice, confidence in one's, ab- confidence in one's ability. If you're listening very closely, Westmount, those of you who've been here for a while, this is very dangerous, isn't it? Confidence in one's ability. So David practiced enough, had enough confidence in his ability, and here we go. 
Believing victory is possible. So David, you just had to believe that victory was possible. And the courage to attempt that which seems overwhelming. Listen, why are we doing this? Because we all do this. Right? We all do it. We have a bag of spiritualisms that we want to import on the text. And beloved, I love you and care for the way you read the text. Do you want to know what the text says? Verse 40, this is what it actually says. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. That's it. Do you see that? But let me ask you something. Did that, from New York, from one person, did it not sound biblical? Listen, you could probably, and yes, you can, get some of those things elsewhere in Scripture. But please, not in a text that screams the supremacy and authority of God in all things. That he will not be mocked by a Philistine. Beloved, that text has nothing to do with you. Of course, and I say that because this is how the article ends. Are you ready to face off against your adversaries, your giants? Has the Spirit of God moved you to collect your five stones before battle? If it has, do your stones also have the names of the five stones of David? And here now, it's in print, right? And authorized that those five stones had names. If you will allow me one last piece, I just need to say this so that we know what tempts us in the virtual world and in the church proper. The first comment to that article said this, listen, It is well to note that five is the number for grace. When Paul asked God to deliver him from his afflictions, God replied, my grace is sufficient. God never denied Paul his healing, but actually gave him a hint to receive the healing he sought after by grace. Beloved, listen to me. I have no idea where five and grace and 2 Corinthians 12 come together. But this is a comment now on that article. David conquered Goliath by the grace of God Almighty. The five stones, and listen to the authority of the internet, the five stones also represent the five officers of the church found in Ephesians 4. Presumably, the teachers, evangelists, right? Apostles, presumably that. The five officers are to train the saints in the church, and here it is, beloved, to defeat their Goliaths. And that's it. Why, why do I take the time? I take the time so that we don't do this. I take the time so that when you're reading Exodus in your devotions and you get to frames and you feel like, you know what, it's, it's just frames, you recognize it is just frames. And I praise God it's just frames because God is in all of those details and the frames don't need to mean anything else other than they're frames. And God cares about the details. And I better not, when I go to the text, bring myself to the text. Because listen, I, I give this illustration because this leads to all kinds of trouble. And when we're already bent, remember what Jeremy taught us in class this morning. Our anthropology tells us we're dead and fallen. And we have all kinds of human-isms that we want to bring to this book. And when you do that to stories like David and Goliath, and when you do it to something like this, the frames, you're in a whole lot of trouble. Beloved, sometimes frames are just frames. And that is the divine word of God. And it's more than okay. One thing, because I know you're asking this now, and this is a very good Berean question. How do you know? You're asking that? How do you know? 
How do I know? Because Jason, you seem to have been pointing to some of the New Testament. That's a great question. Number one, let me give you a helpful little tool. Two things you say. Number one, is it referenced elsewhere? Right? Is it referenced elsewhere? Is what I'm reading here, before I want to jump off, does the Old Testament or New Testament do that? What have we been reading concurrent to our study in Exodus? What did Jeremy Parvet take us through? Hebrews. Hebrews is referencing what? The tabernacle and bringing in who? Jesus Christ. Referenced in technicolor. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. That's one. Secondly, we would say, is it new? Is it new? You hear what I just read to you and you would recognize that, that it is not, or that it is new. Because for thousands of years, Christians looked at the lampstand and the menorah and they recognized what? Oh, that's John 8. The light of the world. There's always that connection. Recognize the light of the world. You know the light from the tabernacle. I'm the light of the world. Yet for one person in upstate modern New York, the third stone is labeled preparation. You see that? Is it new? Is it new? Church, it's tempting, I know, to add to Scripture, but it is very, very toxic and very dangerous and very much not good for your spiritual health. Again, sometimes frames are just frames. Expected details, but not emphasized details. So the curtains, the frames. Thirdly, the veils. Finally, the tabernacle's structural details are capped with two veils. The first is described in verses 31 to 35. Let's consider it in verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinned linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. You shall put the table on the north side. We are cued to the location of this first veil by its description alone. Maybe you've picked that up. Its description alone tells you something. Again, we've seen blue and purple and scarlet yarns set against fine twinned linen. Once again, we see woven in cherubim. Once again, we see hooks of gold. All of this affirms what we've seen repeatedly, and it's this, excellent craftsmanship. An excellent craftsmanship, not just because, remember, reserved for God's presence. And then verse 33 confirms that. Look at verse 33 again. You shall hang the veil from the class and bring the Ark of the Testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. This inner veil veils the inner room of the tent, like an entrance to it. The most holy place, right? And this is where the Ark would be. This inner veil's uniqueness, by the way, is confirmed by the word for veil there. Look at it in verse 33. That is the only time that word for veil is used in the Old Testament. Only time, speaking to its uniqueness. And what this veil represents, unlike the frames, now here it is, here's our first object lesson of interpretation. 
what this veil represents, and you say, well, how do you know it represents something? Well, it's given directly for us in the New Testament. Jeremy mentioned that this morning. And what is it? Consider Hebrews 10.19, a book contrasting the old and the new, right, as we've been looking at, a book contrasting the old tabernacle, temporary tabernacle, with the new tabernacle, Jesus. And after three chapters on tabernacle comparison, listen to this. Again, we read it already this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. That's pretty clear. Pretty clear. God's people of old relied on a representative, the Levite, who is a priest each year, who would enter the most holy place. Remember, once a year, that's what the text says, there's, no, there's access to God no other way. Only one going through that inner veil would have been a Levite, a priest, once a year. That's it. Now, no longer, though, that was then, no longer now, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, no longer for God's people now. Christ made a way for all of us to access God. There's no longer a veil between God and man. That is torn open by Christ. In fact, tearing open his flesh. And that's the peace. With his torn flesh that gives us access to God. That's the point. Thus, he now stands, the Christ, now stands as our great high priest, our representative before God Almighty. He stands before us in God Almighty, not a veil. The inner veil then, a reminder to us now of what is no longer necessary in Jesus. And finally, we get one more veil. <clears throat> it's described in verse 36. Look at 36 and 37. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This veil... The second, let's call it outer veil, served as the main entrance to the tent. It was indeed the outer veil to the holy place. As you can see, it was elaborate, but not as much as the inner veil. That's obvious from a, from a reading. It did not have cherubim, but it did have embroidered needlework. And its accessories, like the other curtains, included some bronze touches. So it's there. And it's a fitting door. To this tent. It's very fitting as we pull back and look at this in full. And it is a second veil, again, the second veil of two veils. Those are the veils, both in different ways, marking off access to God's presence. One on the outer, one in the inner. And the tent, by the way, when we think about marking access to the tent, the tent, remember, is the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with man. And there's entrance to that. So we've seen today structured with curtain layers and, and veils and so forth. And that's because access to God demands it. It's never failed to understand that. Access to God demands it. Our God is holy. Our God is perfect and beloved. We are not. We are not. You know, you wonder, and this is the type of Wondering, sometimes we can have, but you wonder of the Israelite, maybe of the tribe of Reuben, 
of Naphtali, maybe of Asher. You just wonder. That's all you do. You wonder. They weren't priests. They wandered in the wilderness, right? Maybe you're from Gad. Maybe you're from Zebulun and you're walking by that tent day after day after day. And you know because you've been taught from when you were little, God's presence is there, right? Can you just picture that? And you will never get there. You walk by day after day after day and it's a tent and it moves with you. Why is it so important, Daddy? Well, it moves God's presence. Yahweh's with us and He's there. What's inside the tent? I want to draw close to God. And you would be reminded as an ancient Israelite that you don't have access. Obviously, even the Levites, not all the Levites, would have even had presence. A selective, selective entrance into God's presence. And what I pray, beloved, is you think about the ancient person of God. We must never lose sight of this again, as Jeremy reminded us this morning. We have access now. Do you take that access for granted? You have access to God Almighty. Always. Now. We do not have to gaze on a tent of skins. And wonder, and wonder, and wonder. We do not have to hear of the impossible, impermeable veil. And wonder. No, there's Christ, the God-man, who is the dwelling place of God with man. And beloved, listen, He is our access. Christ. You have it now. Praise God. In Jesus Christ, the tabernacle is no longer a temporary tent, but an eternal Son. Jesus Christ. Through Him you have access forever, Christian, if you are a Christian here today. You have access, not just on the Day of Atonement, if you have the right tribe lineage, and you have the right lot. You, child of God, today have access always. And I press it because I don't know what you have on your schedule for tomorrow. But by 3.38 tomorrow afternoon, you might lose sight of that. Right? You have access now and then and always. The curtain, the flesh is torn and you have access to Him. Thus, we can only respond the way that we must in light of that. Worship Him and ascribe to Him the glory that He is due. It's not about us in any way but it's all about Him. Let's declare that. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You for this grand truth that we have access through Your Son to You. We that were once rebels of You, we that were once slaves to our own unrighteousness and sin, while we were yet sinners, You sent Your Son to have His flesh, that curtain, torn for us. God, we can only rejoice now. And give your Son, as we must, all glory for what he's done for us. Lord, let us live that this week. Please help us to do so as we thank you in your Son's name. Amen.